Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today, we're speaking with Svi Langerman, Professor Emeritus of Arabic at Bar Ilan University, a man who knows a thing or two about an exquisitely terse and difficult to interpret but central book in the Jewish esoteric tradition. I refer, of course, to the Sefer Yetzirah. We had some technical difficulties with the recording right at the beginning, so I'm re-recording this intro. And unfortunately, the sound quality on Professor Langerman's audio is pretty bad for the first three minutes or so of the interview. I do apologize for that, but it's very much worth uh, struggling through, and it gets better after about the three-minute mark. This interview doesn't fit into the normal podcast chronology because, first of all, the Sefer Yetzirah can hardly be dated. We have no idea when it was written, and... The range of possible dates suggested by specialists stretch from late antiquity until relatively late in the medieval period. What we do in this interview is discuss the vast sweep of interpretation history of this book. Many listeners, if you're like me, will think of this text primarily as a foundational text of Kabbalah, and it is that. But Svi Langerman tells us the story of how it was interpreted long before Kabbalists got a hold of it. And it turns out the story is much more fascinating and complex than one would think based on scholarship of Kabbalah alone. So without further ado, here's our interview with Svi Langerman. What got you interested in this extraordinary work in the first place? Okay, I am by training and by PhD an historian of science. And I specialize in texts in Hebrew, Arabic, Judeo-Arabic from the medieval period, but going, you know, uh, fluid boundaries even more in both directions. And I came to Sefer Yitzirah by way of the first wave of commentaries to Sefer Yitzirah, all of which, without exception, read the book as a book of science. Uh, we're talking about uh, commentaries that uh, stretch from Baghdad in the East, where Sajigaon wrote a full-length commentary, which was very influential in, in Judeo-Arabic. Uh, then moving on to North Africa, Kairouan, which is present-day Tunis, uh, where Isaac Israeli and his student Dunash uh, wrote a commentary. This commentary has been it's hard to figure out how much is a student and how much is the master and whether it's one or the both, but it's not that critical for our talk today. Also in Judeo-Arabic, but translated into Hebrew. And across the pond in southern Italy, which was at that time still part of the Byzantine Empire, we have a Shabbatai Donalo wrote in Hebrew, a commentary in Hebrew on Sefer Yitzhak. And then moving to the western extremity, we have in uh, Spain, uh, Yuda Levy uh, in Spain, uh, Iberia, it wasn't really Spain yet, and a little south, uh, a bit later, uh, Yuda Ibn Malka in Morocco. Moving up north to England, we have uh, Elkanan Nelio working around the year 1200 in London, wow. writing in Hebrew. So all of these people are working uh, from, like, say, the 10th to the 12th century, uh, basically. And all of them are writing 
full length, and also there's a sorry, there's also Yudha Barcelona in Barcelona, uh, or the very important commentary. So we have here at least half a dozen uh, book length uh, commentaries on Sefer Yitzira, all of which read the book as a book of science and interpret it or expand upon it with the scientific information at their disposal from, you know, medieval texts. Now, this is a bit problematic because in some fundamental ways, Sefer Yitzira, based on a different science, uh, in particular, it doesn't recognize the four traditional elements, uh, the Pedagogian elements, fire, earth, air, and water. It has only three, fire, water, and air. But they simply ignore this and merrily go along and gloss the book in terms of medieval science. Now, that may have been an earliest strand of there's commentaries. It probably was, but we don't have any texts. We have some references or some maybe quotations or, or, or uh, paraphrases in some of these commentaries. So this is the first full you know, body of, of commentarial literature on Sefer Yitzhira, and they're all reading it as a book of science. Now, why did they do this? Uh, I, say, I would say for two reasons. First of all, because that may well have been the authorial intent, if we can speak of such thing, of the author or authors, because what Sefer Yitzhira contains for the most part are simply lists of components of the universe grouped into threes, sevens, and twelves mainly, and listing the correspondences. What I mean is that there are three major groupings, what is called in Hebrew nefesh, which usually means soul, but in this book, and, and actually it's actually biblical usage, means the human body. So we have the parts of the human body, the major organs, the limbs, and so on. We have uh, olam, which is the uh, the universe, the physical uh, universe, both the uh, heavens and earth. And then we have shana, which means year, and which is time. So we're basically drawing up lists of correspondences between the major and minor components of the temp of time, the, the, the time in which all of this takes place and exists the physical universe at large, the, the macrocosm, and the human body, the microcosm. And it's mostly just listing the parts and the correspondences, adding to it their correspondences to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Remember, if I said 3, 7, and 12, which are important numbers in, in arithmology, if you add 3, 7, and 12, you get 22. And this is conveniently works out to the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet and also giving an important role to the number 10, the first 10 uh, numbers, the natural numbers. And if you add 10 to 22, you get 32. Uh, this, all these have, have, have different meanings, but there's no really, uh, let's say, physical theory or a, a attempt to explain how all these things work together. It's just basically an inventory uh, and matching things one to the other. So the, it's a book that really calls the commentary. You have a list of like the parts. We have all the parts and you have to figure out, you know, how they fit together. 
And that's and they these are all basically do this again using you know uh, medieval science. As you say, it's a work that demands it calls out to be interpreted uh, because yes, it's so because minimal. The basic text itself is so small, about a thousand words altogether, and it can all be written basically on one piece of paper. And some have suggested that it was originally an amulet, an amulet that you would write the whole thing on a, a piece of paper and fold it up and put it in this little silver case and wear it around your neck. Wow. Hmm. Now, so that's where I'm coming at it. I'm reading it as, uh, I'm reading the commentaries really, not particularly concerned with the textual history of Sefer Yisir itself. And almost, I've, I say with almost all of the scholars before me who have studied the text were more interested in the text itself and trying to figure out when it was written and, and can we discover different layers that, you know, things were added on in the course of time. And these these are, for the most part, students of mysticism of Kabbalah mm. uh, because the text was appropriated by the Kabbalists. Now, the range of opinions as to when the book was written is fairly, it goes... It's close to a thousand years. Some put it almost in the second, second temple period or the end of the second temple. And uh, some, a, a, a very brilliant scholar of uh, alchemy, actually, and and uh, various strands of Islamic thought, Paul Krauss, who worked in the middle part of the, of the 20th century, uh, thought it was actually written in the early Islamic period. Uh, he found a, an interesting correspondence between the way the letters are grouped in Sefer Yitzirah and in Ismaili theology. The Ismailis are a branch of the Shia uh, who are the ones who were the most enthusiastically involved in, in Hellenistic philosophy. And we're also, we have some idea of what they call now letterism, yeah. study of, of letters. Notice that uh, the, in this Ma'ili theology, which places great emphasis on, you know, interpretations of the letters of the, Ar- the Arabic alphabet, yeah. they give a special role to three letters, the Aleph, Mim, and Sin, which correspond to the three letters that are taken to be sort of the uh, chief letters of the alphabet, just as there are three chief bodily organs, the brain, the liver, and the heart, Sefer Yitzhira, picks out three letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Mem, and Shin, to be the three sort of uh, chief letters. Now, actually, that is interesting. Aleph is the first letter. Mem is pretty much in the middle. Spectrum to take Taf, which is the end, the last letter. Then you spell out the Hebrew word Emet, which means truth. Hmm. And in fact, we have actually once in Hebrew, it's probably a late antique Midrash which talks about how the first, middle, and letters of the Hebrew alphabet spell out truth, which is one of the divine names. Mm. Uh, but Sefer Yitzhira can't use Taf because it's one of the seven double letters, so it had to move it back one to Shin, which is the next to last letter. So he thought that this was indicated some sort of uh, cross-pollination and would be uh, evidence that the uh, authors were writing in the early Islamic period. 
Now, trying to put together a, in such a small text to dissect it further and try and find, you know, this portion was added earlier, this portion was added later, is a very challenging task. Though, though actually one of the earliest commentators, Yuda uh, of Barcelona, Bargaloni of Barcelona, already detected, he's working in the, in the 12th century, he's already gathering manuscripts, noticing that they disagree as to the text, and is suggesting that there's what you know we call, now I don't like this word, it sounds you know, diseased, we call it contamination. The text has been contaminated by marginal notes. Yep. If you know how manuscripts, copyists and writing work, what happens is it's, you know, people would, would have a, a text and they would write like we do today in a, a note in the margin of the text. Now, there are two reasons why someone would do this in the medieval period. One is that they had a different version of the text and they think this particular version they're studying is missing something. So they're copying into the margin something that belongs to the text that's missing in their copy. Or they are making a sort of a jotting down a note to themselves as to what the meaning of the text is. Now, someone coming across this text 50, 100 years later doesn't know for sure if this belongs to the text or it's just a comment. So sometimes they will decide that it belongs to the text and insert it in their copy. And then something that started as a marginal uh, gloss becomes part of the text. We see this in the text of the Hermetica very clearly in a few places, in the Corpus Hermetica. Yeah, right. So. And it's very difficult. Now, when you have such a small text, and when the text is full of what we call, you know, intertextuality, that is to say, the authors uh, deliberately take uh, phrases from earlier writings, the Bible, the Talmud, and put them for, for literary styles. It's a literary forest that continues to stay in Hebrew. So how are you supposed to decide that this, this part came before that part? Because they're both very parsimonious in the word, with the words and both making use of early text. But one of the most interesting studies from this angle on the text was published uh, by Slomo Pinas, who was actually a friend and colleague of Krauss, and like Krauss, knew everything from Sanskrit to Persian to Arabic to Greek, and they knew all the languages. And he detected uh, uh, two very different uh, uh, worldviews or theologies in, in uh, Sefer Yitzhak. He found that one part of the text has a strong correspondence with what, what they're called the pseudo-Clementine homilies. These are Greek homilies attributed to Clement of Rome. And these are, these have some sort of Jewish connection or Jewish-Christian connection. Yeah. And the salient points which this homily shares with at least five of Yitzhira is are, are two. One is locating the divinity in the center of the cosmos. And two, having the divine force or the divine efflux dynamically go in and out along six axes. Uh, one is north-south, east-west, east-west, and up and down. Both of these things are in Sefer Yitzhirah. And Penis, being a, a close student of theology, said that this, the, the idea of placing God at the center is actually striking because monotheists usually speak of God being above place. You can't put him in a, you can't locate him in one place. 
And here, these two texts say God is in this one particular locale. But then there's the other part of Sefer Yitzirah, which has the 10 Sfirot. This is, this is what actually gave the Kabbalists something to hang their hat on, because one of the first uh, passages of Sefer Yitzirah mentions 10 Sfirot. Now these, by all accounts, including Gershom Sholem and all the students of the Kabbalah, do not refer to the 10 Sfirot of the Kabbalah. They are not named. No Keter, no Malchut, they're not named. They most likely refer to the first 10 numbers of the natural numbers. And being as no detected the sort of cultural impact or shock when when these this uh, idea of the decimal system and decimal arithmetic came from India to the Middle East, uh, and that's like the seventh century. And he claims that these are two almost incompatible systems: one with six directions and one with ten, uh, which were sort of uh, welded together in Sefer Yitzira. But you know that by now they, they, or even by the time of the early period, they they seem to be sort of naturally complementing each other. And with the numbers, it works out wonderfully because if you take three, seven, and twelve, these are the grouping, and it's all over medieval science, particularly with the seven. You have seven planets, seven metals, seven tones, and you have the twelve signs of the zodiac, and so on, and. In music, in alchemy, in astrology, you have people drawing up these charts with the correspondences, and, and Sefer's here fits perfectly into that scheme. But you have, but now if you add the numbers up, three, seven, and 12, you get 22, the numbers in the Hebrew alphabet. So you bring the Hebrew alphabet into the, the story. And then you add to that 10, you get 32. And 32 in the Hebrew alphanumeric, so you write the numbers using each each letter of the alphabet has a numerical value. So you end up using the two letters, Lamed and Blaze, which means heart. So you have the heart. There are 32 paths, the heart. And this and all these things open up all sorts of correspondences. And in the uh, late 12th, early 13th century, one of the key figures of, of the early Kabbalah, Isaac the Blind, wrote a commentary on Sefer Yetzirah in which he basically accepted the, the philosophical scientific interpretation that has been given by earlier commentators, but he added to it a layer of Kabbalistic interpretation. This is, happens all the time. Commentators uh, don't throw out the earlier traditions. They add to them and integrate their, their views into the comment. But over the course of time, the Kabbalah gained momentum and, the, and many other capitalistic commentaries were written, and which looked at it exclusively almost from the capitalistic uh, perspective. The big difference is that the medieval scientific perspective is looking at Sefi Yitzira and trying to understand how uh, the, w- things work in our world, our cosmos, our human bodies, and the world, the planets around us, whereas the capitalists are looking at how things work in the divine worlds which supposedly influence and govern what happens here. And this, so for like uh, uh, nearly uh, 700 years, the text was being read read almost exclusively as a capitalistic period. And then in the 20th century, an American American Jew 
who uh, was trained as a physicist and worked for the National Bureau of Standards and wrote some paper, published papers on magnetism, uh, chucked it all and got into religion. And uh, he came to St. Fikitsira and brought with it uh, his scientific background, and he was able to give it an interpretation which by no stretch of the imagination could be the authorial intent. He's talking about the, the Sefer Yitzhira being uh, giving an, a, a critical, uh, important role to hypercubes. These are five-dimensional cubes because 32 is two to the fifth power. So you have two to the two to the you know the third power, two cubed eight, that gives you the three physical dimensions. You add the fourth dimension, which is time, which is the Sefer Yitzhira. And the fifth dimension is what he says the the uh, the node of the interface between the material world and the spiritual world. So it works out perfectly. And he has many other things to do with the uh, number of vertices uh, uh, being, uh, you know, to the. But uh, but the, the point is that, he, that he's finding here a more rich scientific uh, interpretation, which, which comes out of these accretions and and really cannot possibly be the original, the, the authorial intent. I don't know if anyone, we can recover the authorial intent. I tend to think that this belonged to a group of texts that were written uh, early on when science began to uh, you know, be absorbed and take momentum in the early Islamic period. But at the same time that they were studying science, they knew it was Greek science, it was ancient science. It was a lot of Jewish thinkers who had, who had this notion that Jews are supposed to be uh, experts in astronomy in particular, were worried that where is our ancient uh, Hebrew scientific text? And so this was Sefer Yetzirah, and at least one commentator, Yudah Levi, uh, says this explicitly. He says, you want to know, you know where the ancient and true Hebrew science is? Go to Sefer Yetzirah. Uh, so the last gentleman you spoke of, this enigmatic American Jew is, of course, Arya Kaplan, who is a very, very interesting character in his own right. You've brought out an absolutely fascinating and rich reception history. Let me see if I can say it back to you for, for the benefit of listeners who know nothing about this stuff, not unlike me. And, and tell me if I'm summarizing this in a way that's helpful. This, this text, the Sefer Yetzirah, shows up at some point that no one can uh, really say. We know it's there in later antiquity, very late, like 7th century for sure. But how far back before that does it go? We don't know. Some people like Shlomo Pines want to say there's at least two different redactional layers. So at least at least two authors, again, open to interpretation. Then we have a first wave of interpretation by Jewish scholars who are writing in the Islamicate world, but also in Western Europe, writing... Yeah. But taking this text as roughly a, a work of scientific cosmology that tells us yeah. stuff about the, the cosmos. Then, with the rise of Kabbalah, we have... I, I mean, this work is just ripe for Kabbalistic interpretation, right? Once you, once you take the alphanumeric mindset, which doesn't necessarily have anything particularly esoteric in it uh, a priori, but in Kabbalah it, now the alphanumeric mindset is the key to understanding the secrets of Torah and everything. They take this text and particularly um, Isaac the Blind takes this text. 
he's not he's not jettisoning the old scientific interpretations. He's he's read them, but he's saying, but also let's talk about the mysteries of letters in terms of divine reality and how it relates to this world. And people run with it from there. And maybe the scientific stuff kind of falls by the wayside a little bit. It becomes a bit more just like, let's get into Kabbalah. Then I could add another layer of interpretation, right? Which is going to be Christian. Well, possibly we have this intriguing Ismaili uh, reception outside of Jewry, right? Which is a really interesting idea. Because as we know, the Ismailis are especially interested in the mysteries of letters and alphanumeric work. But this is just something you get in Islam more generally. Just like it's you get it in rabbinic Judaism more generally. It's not just a kind of esoteric Kabbalistic thing to find numerical correspondences. It's just a principle of exegesis. Yeah, numerical right? correspondences are in, in, in Arabic, and not just Ismailis, in, in, uh, in, in uh, for instance, both both the Hebrew Bible and the Quran begin with the second letter of the alphabet, which means that the first, that the one, the alif, is hidden. Is the ineffable, yes. The relation begins only with the number two. Mm. Then we have maybe a layer of, getting into the early modern period, we have a, a layer of interpretation which we haven't talked about, or a, or a layer of reception, I should say, which is reception of Kabbalistic ideas by Christians. The, the birth of Christian Kabbalah, they're maybe not reading Sefer Yetzirah, but they're certainly reading people who are reading Sefer Yetzirah and crafting this new thing. And that goes into occultism. And then we have, I think, something that should be just considered part of the same story, which is the scientific historical study of Kabbalah and right. Jewish medieval science and, and all this stuff by people like Sholem, Moshe Idel, and folks like that. Well, Sholem in particular... Had was somebody he had an internal conflict, whether it be a student of Kabbalah or a mathematician. So the the mathematical aspects of this interested him, and he had much more competence to uh, to get at them and understand, sort out the real combinatorics from the sort of phony thing than than, than uh, other uh, students of Kabbalah that I'm aware of. Right, and then maybe a, a yet another. Heuristically, we could say another reception history is Arya Kaplan. He's not a scholar of Kabbalah per se, although I guess he, he becomes deeply invested in the whole kind of Jewish religious tradition later in his life. But he's taking things to a new level. He's and arguably doing maybe precisely what earlier generations were doing, but in a new context, which is taking what they saw as up-to-date scientific cosmology and reading this ancient work and going, ah, this relates to up-to-date scientific cosmology in this way. So now we're talking about hypercube, like, you know, post-Euclidean hypercubes as a way of uh, doing topography of time-space. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, it was, a, it was a case of saying, well, the text says three elements, but we know there's four elements, so we're going to be able to find four elements in the right. text somehow, right? I mean, just to add one, one thing, though, that the, the uh, field is a little different in, in, in our day because in the medieval period, you didn't have the division between practitioners of Kabbalah and so-called academic students of Kabbalah right. who claim to be, you know, have a sort of a, a scientific distance from their study, from this from there. And in our, our own day, we do. And I think this is part of the reason why Kaplan's book is, 
is not appreciated that much, if at all, by the academic uh, students of Kabbalah, of whom there are many. Uh, now, he was actually, he was not a trained scholar in terms of, 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 of being trained in the history of Kabbalah, but he actually did a, a lot of work in, in, in digging up old editions and manuscripts. And I, I've been, uh, at least one academic expert on Kabbalah told me that he, that, that his bibliographies for, for you know, for his one time wrote the book are, are excellent. But the field now is complicated by that because you have, it's, it's not simply people who are capitalists who are, you know, debating about the interpretation of the work, but it's also academics who are studying in the work and are bringing to it occasionally, I would say, some of the territoriality that comes with academic studies. So that's, that's the reason why Kaplan's book is so popular in the bookstores and has been translated into different languages. But I'm not sure if it, how thrilled some of the academic scholars of Kabbalah would be to have it integrated into the reception history of the book the way I'm trying to. Yeah. Um, science, so I don't, I'm not, you know, hold to them. Yeah, exactly. Look, it, it's very easy for someone like me who usually works with texts that are by dead people to look at that body of evidence and say, okay, that's all we have to work with. And then somehow make a silent transition into that's all there is, you know, and pretend right. that that because it's manageable, because it doesn't answer back when you make interpretations, it doesn't tell you you're wrong. You, it's very, in some ways, very tempting just to stick with that. You have someone like Arya Kaplan, who's living after the construction of the academic study of Kabbalah and going, I'm going to get stuck into Kabbalah and I'm a physicist and I can, uh, like, who are you to tell me this is a dead tradition? Presumably he's also making a, making a kind of stand against, or not against maybe, but it, that would also be not welcome among uh, traditional like Hasidim who practice Kabbalah in this very oh, yes. Don't forget, hidden uh, way. One thing to say about, about Kaplan, to his credit and also to his he, at the beginning of his of his book, he says that most of the, the early commentaries on, on the uh, uh, the Sefer Yitzirah tell you more about the commentator's outlook than the Sefer Yitzirah's outlook. Very important insight and something that will be seconded by just about everyone. But the first, I think, lesson that one should draw from this is, well, okay, now let me check myself. Am I reading into it things from my own? And that and that's a step that people people don't take. There's a Hebrew saying that says, uh, "Your ears should listen to what your mouth says." You know, you should you should, you should follow your own advice. So if you are in, insightful enough to know that the commentators to Sefer Yitzirah are basically bringing their own worldview and trying to present it as the authentic or the uh, correct. Uh, uh, understanding of Sefer Yitzirah, well, maybe this has a lot to do with, you know, your own worldview and, 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 and less with Sefer Yitzirah. Yeah. The problem is acute with Sefer Yitzirah because it tells us so little off its own back. You know, it's so hard to know what the person or persons who wrote this were thinking. If I could you indulge in a bit of comparative exactly. work. If, if we read Homer, the ancient Greek poet, we can say a lot about this let's say the 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 worldview he's in 
using part of a tradition that goes back into the Bronze Age, but def- definitely writing in this new polis classical period, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. The, the kinds of ideas he has access to, the kinds of ways of thinking about the world. Then when we read late Platonists, commentators on Homer, who are reading him as a kind of esoteric theologian, it's very easy to say, okay, look, that's really not in Homer. You're finding it there, but it's not there. Um, it's it's right. not tough to make that call. You can be as post. Oh, I read that. So I read that book, Home with the Theologian. Yeah, by Lamberton. Great book. So right. we can. Um, you can be as postmodern as you want and forget about authorian intent and whatnot. But still, Homer is saying something, even if we can't pin it down exactly. It's definitely not late Platonist theological metaphysics. I would say now with Sefer Yetzirah, you don't have that luxury, right? It's just this stripped down physical or maybe metaphysical or something series of numbers and letters and kind of interrelations and just presented as a kind of schema. And we don't know when it was written. We don't really know what kind of worldview it's in. So then when someone says what it's really about is ba 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 ba, it's much harder to say, no, it's not. You know, I mean, you can say, okay, it's not about fifth dimensional hypercubes because no one is, you know, until you get early 20th century mathematics, that's not even on the table, right? That's just impossible for people to think about. But then someone can always say, well, you look, nothing's impossible for God. If this is divinely inspired in some way, then why can't we find it in the text legitimately? Uh, by the way, the, we didn't mention this, but uh, the, one of the, one of the uh, arguments that had been, been made for the antiquity of Sefer is that is mentioned in the Talmud that uh, Rabbi Hanina and Rabbi Oshaya spent every Sabbath Eve studying Hilchot Yitzirah by means of which they created a, th- a third-grown calf and then ate it. Obviously, it's an allegory, but people put together that story and, and a similar one with these legends of the golem, where apparent, where maybe the Maharal put a, a slip, like I said, that the could be used as an amulet, put it under the tongue of the golem, and that animated him, and said, well... Here, this is proof that that, that the Sefer uh, Tzirah is ancient. It's mentioned by the Talmud, but there's no citation, not even a word, not even a letter from Sefer Tzirah cited. So all we, we have is a title, basically, a generic title. And actually, in one in one manuscript of the Talmud, this I, I, I checked, it's called uh, Sefer Briah. Briah in Hebrew was a synonym for Tzirah, but it's, it's a different word. Now the earliest. Uh, I think extant, uh, maybe there is extant commentary. There is one of the earliest manuscripts of the Sefer on the Vatican has a very short introduction in Hebrew in which it, it states that Sefer was the blueprint for creation. That is to say, God used the, the Sefer Tzirah and, and that was the plan that was put into, 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 into effect in, in creating the universe. Which again comes back. So, so there are all these uh, these uh, things going out there that mean, as you said, that you're really not bound by any anything in, in, in trying to to uh, make some sort of uh, interpretation or guess at, at the at, at the meaning of the book. But for my work as a historian of science, the medieval commentaries are rich in hardcore scientific texted other things that I'm interested in. Well, that's great because that gives us 
in, in this really giant field of interpretation around this this little book or amulet, it's very important to have, you know, wh- whatever solid ground we can find, we'll take it. And it seems like this medieval interpretation of this book as a cosmological treatise within up-to-date scientific cosmology at the time is something sound that we can put our feet on before we dive into the deeply esoteric hermeneutics that never end and just kind of keep churning up new meanings and let's bring in some Torah, let's bring in this, let's bring in that. Oh, like what about the Shiur Koma texts? Like we could we can splash the shoe together and then it gets even crazier. And I I really appreciate your work here as well because I feel like in intellectual history, this scientific side is like an open secret. It's It's secret history because so many people, because of the achievement of Sholem and because Sholem has very much been adopted by people who who aren't at all read in this vast multilingual body of Jewish knowledge, which is Kabbalah and uh, related subjects. They just go to Sholem and say, okay, he's presented it. We pretty much, he's the, he's the guy. And uh, now we can say stuff about it. But he's it's not that he's ignorant about this scientific reception. He's just, it's just not what he's mainly concentrating on. It seems to me. Correct me if you think yeah. I'm wrong here, but I mean, I mean, if you if you if you if you decide that that that, that Saja and the others are simply, you know, uh, building, uh, putting science on top of the foundation of Sefiyatira, with this dis- disregarding its uh, actual uh, an original intent or what it, when it came out and what it was supposed to be, then you you can do that. You can say you know study the commentaries as commentaries. If you're a student of medieval science and philosophy, go ahead. But I'm just looking at the text itself. And uh, since, as a student of the Kabbalah, I know that it was, it was adopted as a meditative text, as a, uh, as a uh, text that had given magical properties, I will, you know, try and look at it from there. So you, 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 can, you can try and, and divorce the, 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 uh, the text from, from these commentaries. It's, it's legitimate and... And again, I said, I'm not. I'm, I'm not really as a, for, for my work as a student of history of science, studying the scientific commentaries. It's not all that critical for me to know exactly when the book was written, since I'm interested in, in the commentaries. But since I got involved in it, I'm I, I, you know sort of getting my my two cents worth as to uh, some of these ideas. Yeah. Uh, always being aware, you know. Is this me or is this the book I'm studying? Mm. So you have on the one hand someone like Arya Kaplan, who's, who isn't concerned with that. He doesn't have to be, That's which right. is great because he's, op- he's open about it. But I wonder also, well, it, this is always a difficult line in the study of religions. It's always difficult because on the one hand, you can't really understand and expound a, a religious tradition very well if you're not kind of sympathetic with it at least. And some of the greatest work of history of religions has been done, you know, like work on early Christianity done by Christians who are deeply learned, work on Kabbalah done by Jews who are deeply learned. But you have to somehow maintain that uneasy balance between outside observer and sympathetic participant observer, sort of, you know, the anthropologists have sort of have worked this out, I think, better than the historians of religion. They saw in real time, uh, you know, the... They they went to study some tribe somewhere, and then they realized that the people there are studying them. And so, what the behavior they're seeing is 
is their reaction to the anthropologist and not really their sort of pristine yeah. uh, behavior. And I wonder in this context, if you're familiar with the sort of quite a little bit difficult, let's say a little bit difficult to classify work of Elliot Wolfson, who's a scholar of Kabbalah, because his work to me often seems to be in a sort of late 20th century, early 21st century iteration of Kabbalist hermeneutics filtered through a whole bunch of other stuff like Derrida and, and Heidegger and God knows what all. It's scholarship, but it's also, it's of course interpretation. So it always has that danger of, you know, the, the whole problem of objectivity and stuff inherit. But it seems like the problem of objectivity has itself kind of dissolved into the scholarship. Yeah, I think that, I think the idea of, uh, of pure objectivity that we, is sort of an unattainable goal. Uh, what you need is to be simply a critical self-awareness, and you know that's 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 the best you can do. And it's actually it's not illegitimate to try and you know get across some of your own ideas as part of a like an academic study, because history is not a science. It's it's literature that answers certain scientific standards. And of course, but then in the 20th century, when the physicists said, well, even physics, the observer is interfering with the phenomenon that, that, that they're studying, and you can't actually, you know, know where this particle is or that influencing where it is. So we're in, we're in this sort of uh, bind. I think it's something that, you know, sort of just to be aware of yourself and critically review what I, when I, when I was younger, I would write a draft or an article and put it in a drawer and come back to it a year later. Is this really what we want to say? Does this sound any good? Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the best you can do. We're all part of uh, the human endeavor, <laughs> a human quest. Zvi Langerman, thank you so much for your insights into this tradition and more broadly. If only academics nowadays had the luxury of shelving an article for a year and then coming back on mature reflection right. and seeing if they think it's worth publishing or not. Right. Right. That's, that's quite true. Stay esoteric or scientific, as the case may be. Yeah.